0: This is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Bélanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Welcome into the show. My name is Braden Dennis. As always, joined by the majestic Simon Bélanger. We have a great show for you today, of course, and we are going to discuss the Green Bay Packers is my first segment of the day, the football team. You're going to discuss what is a bank, (laughs) the way you have it written here. What does it mean to be a bank? Uh, I'm going to talk about a tip from Peter Lynch that goes way, way back, and you're going to talk about holding cash and uh, how how to get some return on it. My dude, have you have you looked at uh, this Green Bay Packers segment yet, or is this this brand new to you?
1: I'm reading it right now, but um, I would say I'm kind of familiar with it. I, I knew they had uh, um, they had something in place that you'll discuss without uh, to not steal <laughs> yeah, your unique. thunder here. <laughs> it's unique. Um,
0: welcome to the show, and uh, l- let's start here with the business of sports and for this american football and the nfl the nfl's green bay packers in particular and there's no sports league with more value than the nfl uh do you know what the most valuable nfl team is by the way pop quiz uh
1: probably like the dallas cowboys or something like that bingo
0: yeah. bingo oh, the yeah. dallas cowboys have exceeded evaluation of more than eight billion dollars U.S. and are the most valuable franchise in the world. Fun fact: We've been really? on fun facts lately. Yes, fun fact.
1: More than like the football teams in Europe, like Manchester United and all that. I, I would think they're they're not cheap it either. Is more, right? <laughs> it is
0: more valuable than those very popular soccer teams or foot the real football, if you if you will. Yeah. Um, yes, it, it is. Um, and you know, it's, it's crazy how valuable the NFL teams go for. And it's especially when they go for sale because it is the ultimate vanity purchase. Uh, owning a major sports league, like I'm getting a little off topic here, but people who buy NBA teams recently that have been sold, they're valued for more and more each and every year because they're so scarce not because the business is getting better a- the nba has lost a dramatic amount of viewership since 2014 ish like a dramatic amount of viewership the nba has lost yet the franchises are worth more and more cuz there's only a, it's very scarce you know what what is scarce is valuable so the nfl the most valuable sports league uh american football and 30 of the 50 most valuable global sports franchises In the world, are NFL teams fun? More fun facts every team has a value north of three billion US, every single franchise, which is remarkable. There's no uh, NHL team that touches that valuation. I think the Leafs are the highest valued franchise, and we're looking at two billion for the entire MLSE. Don't quote me on that. That's just a quick Google search.
1: Yeah, it's usually I think Leafs, uh, New York Rangers, and then Montreal. I think one, two, three. That's typically how it goes. Yeah.
0: The New York Rangers.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, for yeah, whatever okay. reason, I I don't know if it comes with part ownership of MSG or whatever it is, but um, they've always been at the. It's top a valuable there. franchise. For yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. And just being in the New York market, iconic, yeah. and all that. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, very iconic, and and one of the older teams too. Um. Now, none are more fascinating in the business of sports in the NFL than the Green Bay Packers ownership structure. There are 537,000 shareholders of the Green Bay Packers. And for the first time over a decade, they recently raised some capital. Uh, So from their press release dated uh, February 25th, 2022. So not too long ago, just a little over a year ago. Their sixth stock sale was an outstanding success. It says here, the organization adding one hundred and seventy-six thousand new shareholders. The exact totals are not available, but more than one hundred ninety-eight thousand shares were sold at three hundred dollars each. So they were all three hundred dollars per share. Uh, offering began on November sixteenth, and then it closed in the in February. Um. So yeah, now they have over 500,000 unique shareholders. This raised approximately $65.8 million construction projects at Lambeau Field and and whatever else. They also said here on their press release, right from the Green Bay Packers website, that Canadians purchased a roughly uh, estimated 3,500 shares as well. So 3,500 times 300. Now, it's pretty cool that they do this, Simon, and it's great for fandom. But that is it. It is for fandom. And I'm not saying that in a bad way. I'm saying that in a good way. Fans love to be able to say that they they love the team and they own a piece of it. Like, that's the ultimate flex. But this is a collectible. Uh, it's not an investment. And I think, slash, hope. <laughs> maybe I'm too naive. I hope that people recognize that it is not an investment. Because maybe it's a store of value. Maybe... But things would have to dramatically change for even that to be true, because the shares are not liquid. They don't appreciate. They can't be traded. They don't pay a dividend. Uh, and so there's basically no upside in the way that there the way that there is today. There is virtually no upside. And so essentially, it's a GoFundMe, right? It's That's what it is. But for the GoFundMe, you get to be a part owner of the Green Bay Packers. My only concern is the marketing uh, that the team puts behind this. Because people might FOMO into buying stock in the team, thinking it's cool and might make some money. There's no like, hey, by the way, this is a shit investment. (laughs) It doesn't say that anywhere on the marketing material. (laughs) Um, You can sell it. So there is some liquidity, actually. You can sell it back to the Packers, but at a very steep discount. You can also transfer shares to family members. uh, But again, what are they going to do with them? You can sell them back to the Pack, but for a steep discount. No single owner can more than 4%. I think this is awesome. I think it's cool. But uh, it's not an investment, of course. This is essentially to hang the certificate in the garage like you'd hang some team merchandise, like a signed jersey from Aaron Rodgers. Uh, you know, I back this. And if I was a diehard fan, you'd bet I'd throw $300 on, on buying a share and have my own little stock certificate of the team. I, I think it's great. I think it's cool. Uh, but this is a elaborate GoFundMe.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's uh, that's what I heard before. I didn't read like recently. I wasn't aware that he issued more of it, but that's what I read is that it essentially was like very gimmicky. Um, yeah, yeah, and they were yeah. Look, I mean, it's a small. I think Green Bay's a. It's one of the. I think it is the smallest market right in the U.S. In that, but their for, team for football? is extremely yeah. valuable. It is, but at the same time, right, I'm sure they get really good TV rights and stuff like that, but um, you still have a smaller market to monetize. So, maybe it's a way for them to just be able to, you know, constantly invest in the team and just get some financing, which at yeah. the end of the day doesn't, you know, it's almost free financing <laughs> when you think it's about it. It's free financing. Yeah. So, um, it is. Yeah. I mean, I guess if you're a fan… It's it- actually brilliant yeah um
0: because you're leveraging the fact that the fans will pay for this
1: yeah and you wonder how many like security guards or people that take the tickets at the gate like they must roll their eyes like hearing like oh can i get a, this and that because you know i own this <laughs> stock an and they're probably like uh doesn't matter yeah
0: yeah i'm an owner they're like yes yeah, so is everyone else here
1: Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I would just love, like, how many times they get that in, like, in one day when there's a game. Yeah, they probably get that all the time. Now, you're right. It's
0: the Green Bay Packers, like, locally is not a huge market, but it is one of those kind of, like, iconic brands and teams, and I don't even know how they get there or get that So they'll have a lot of fandom outside and and internationally from all over the country, Canada and internationally. Uh, So that's that's what kind of makes these teams so valuable is like people will be diehard. People will live in Florida and be diehard fans of the Seattle Seahawks, which couldn't literally couldn't be further away from each other geographically that's kind of the power of of the fandom and the sport and you know kind of you know you're kind of a fan of whatever your your parents were a fan of you know that kind of gets passed on right
1: yeah no exactly yeah yeah. (laughs) i mean i personally would not no matter which team it is i would never kind of fall for not fall but do that because i feel like it's a waste of money i'd rather you know Buy a pair of tickets and actually get the experience, but um, you know some people may may enjoy it. Um, I guess uh, we'll see if other teams do it. Probably not because that's been in place for quite some time.
0: Yeah, for a long time. Yeah, it, of course it is gimmicky uh, yeah, for sure. But if you have like a if you have like a garage or like a you know sports room or you know you know the man cave. I think it's a cool thing to put in. People people love these kind of collectibles, yeah. right? And so yeah. th- what I'm saying is that's all it is, but um we should do more the business of sports and some of these kind of private companies and uh some of them are very fascinating and and have really bizarre unique operating uh, structures and ownership structures as well. So uh Yeah, that's that's the that's the Green Bay Packers
1: now we'll move on to the fun world of banking and like you said it like the segment i just want to go over essentially what a bank is because obviously with some of the bank failures that we've seen in the u.s i think a lot of people i, I would say probably the majority of people don't realize that you know deposits at banks do carry some risk especially if they're above the government insured limit which we have the cdic in canada the fdic in the u.s and i think the uk has something similar i think most western nations do have some kind of insurance but i think a lot of people you know don't realize the amount of risk that can be uh, behind that but you know, obviously that's debatable because now I think with what we've seen in the U.S., I think most governments will just not let banks fail that have any kind of importance to their country, even if they're not considered system systematically important because, you know, let's be honest, SVB. Whether it was systematically important or not, I think is debatable. It was not considered before the bank failure. And then depending, you know, on which side that you were, I mean, you can make some arguments that, you know, it should have gone under and the government shouldn't have intervened and you can make a arguments for the other side of as well. Now, what I want to talk about is how savings and loans banks work. I won't touch on the other types of banks here, like investment banks or banks that focus primarily on asset management or even custodial services like a bank of New York Mellon, because those banks make mostly most of their money with fees. And I do have a lot of a feeling that a lot of people think that a bank is just somewhere you can put your money and keep it safe for you but i hate to break it to uh you know those people but that's just not how our banking system works it's completely different than that so i've talked about it before but i'll go into more detail here so we work and the US, you know, the basically the world financial system works on a fractional reserve system. So my guess is that most people have heard this before, but don't fully understand what it means. So this means that when you deposit your money, they simply keep a small portion of, of it as cash and then they turn around and take most of it, the money from it, and they either loan it out to other people ideally at higher interest rates or purchase safe investments, and I'll put that in air quote. Typically, those safe investments will be like something like government bonds or treasuries, uh, oftentimes referred to. The difference between what they pay you in interest on your deposit and what they loan out or guess in investment returns if they purchase treasuries, for example, is called the interest spread the interest spread is how these types of banks make their money. If they're not able to get a good enough spread to cover their expenses and keep some profits, well, I mean, the bank will lose money if that's their primary business model. And something I think that's really important here is l- just looking at the bank assets and liabilities. The bank asset is essentially its loan portfolio, plus its investments that it has with you know, government bonds, for example, plus the cash, its liabilities is the deposits that they have, because the people depositing a money can withdraw that money. And it's a liability for the bank. So that's the primary liability for a bank. And if you look at any of the big Canadian banks, if you look at their balance sheets, look at the liabilities and deposits is by far the main liability that they have. It's actually really big numbers if you look at it. I mean, we have big banks and that's a reason behind that. Anything you want to add there? I remember
0: the first time I took an accounting class and looking at a bank's balance sheet, your brain goes for a backflip because you're right. As soon as a deposit, I give you money. You now mark that as a liability. Um, and of course, you know, lots of investors who are hearing that and going, "Yo, of course, you know, that's, that's how it works. Yeah. But but as a brand new investor or someone just learning the ins and outs of accounting and banks, because it is nuanced and different, you have to kind of wrap your head around uh, the loan portfolio is the number that's on the assets. And so, it's basically kind of opposite to every other business, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Or investments that they make, right? Uh, Because that's That's what we saw with SVB as a big part of those assets were treasuries.
0: Oops, Oops, we bought... Ten years. Yeah. Oops.
1: When the rates were at record low and now it's Oops. gone up. But um, yeah. So essentially that's in a nutshell, that's how a bank works. Obviously, there's def- other types of banks. There are some that are kind of hybrid banks. Like I would say uh, Royal Bank's a bit of a hybrid where, yes, it has a strong you know, personal and commercial banking business, which is tied to deposits and loans like I'm talking about here. But it also has a big wealth management business, also has a, a big Uh, investment banking business but you know there are some banks at their core banks are really you know savings and loans and that's what drives the economy and the bank run risk for banks is primarily tied to a bank's demand deposit accounts so DDAs these are deposits that people are most often used to so if you think of a deposit you'll usually think of it as a demand deposit account or DDA if you have money in a checking account, for example, or a regular savings account, this is considered a DDA. Essentially, you can go and withdraw your money at any time you want. These types of deposits are the ones that can be redeemed by the depositor at any point in time. So at moments notice, and we've seen with technology that moments notice can come very quickly. Um, and that was one of the reasons like when we talked about SVB and you talked about that is how rapid. That withdrawal base in terms of deposit was happening and way more than the traditional. Let's wait in line for the bank to open. And that's what a lot of the regulation in the States and I think globally was tied to is they're like, okay, we have to make sure there's no bank runs, but bank runs are always done in person. Well, that's not the case anymore and there are other types of deposits like term deposits where the money can only be redeemed when the term is done this allows the bank to have more certainty regarding this type of liability since it knows that it cannot be redeemed until the maturity date at least without you know not without a significant significant penalty and if we have a look at td that we talked about in uh, the last episode in terms of uh, you know having a a pretty high short interest they have around 12 percent in cash versus their total deposit so they do have other assets and i didn't dig into their financial to understand how liquid their other assets are aside from their loans. But it's an example of a bank not having all the money as cash. And 12% might seem like Something that's low for people who are not used to banking, but that's actually like pretty good in terms of the amount of cash that they have versus the deposit. But it just goes to show how leveraged banks are in general. And I think the average cash that banks had in the U.S., um, I remember hearing that uh, last month or so, I think it was around 6% when the uh, U.S., uh, the great financial crisis happened. So now they're better capitalized, especially the larger banks. But it's something to keep in mind, and the reason why banks are structured this way is essentially they work to kind of create money. So, you know, your loan is you expect to get your full money back, but the bank, like I said, may turn around and loan 80% of that to someone else, but they still owe you that full 100%. So what they do in terms of loan actually helps to stimulate the economy and make it grow. And that's probably one of the big reasons that the uh, Fed in the US has denied licenses for full reserve banks, because they most likely fear that allowing a model like that would translate into people moving their money or the deposit away from factional fractional reserve banks what we have mostly to full reserve banks just for safety and a full reserve bank would most likely make its money on fees so they would charge people to keep their money safe and what we're seeing right now is that if you're not giving people a decent high enough interest rate is people will start shopping for higher interest rates elsewhere and we're seeing a move into money market funds but also uh, banks that are offering better interest rates in the u.s so there's been some pretty pretty Fairly big changes happening there. Um, I did look at some of that data. I don't have it in front of me, but I think it's about six percent more outflows towards money market funds from actual deposits in the past month. So since the uh, the failure of SVB, and I think as a whole is just people trying to you know get some yield and probably also trying to shift some risk away from you know bank deposit to money market funds that oftentimes are backed by. Trade treasuries.
0: That's a really interesting point. I think for the first time, maybe in a, at least a long time, maybe since 08, that banks are having like an actual customer churn problem yeah. that hasn't existed for a long, long time. I mean, and also when rates are at zero um, and everyone's offering me zero, or, or if it's not zero, you know, the The most competitive rate from a disruptor in the space is still less than a percent on my money. I'm not gonna go out and you know get an extra thirty basis points on my cash and yield. But now when we're talking about like four or five percent you know in that wheelhouse the the difference in the ranges that are being offered are a lot higher. And so I think that they might be having a customer churn problem for the first time in over a decade, uh, at least, maybe more.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I mean – and what you're seeing a lot, and we're seeing this at Canadian banks too, and I'll talk about it in my next segment, and uh, the data for the money market fund actually was, I'm like, I'm pretty sure I pulled the data. I wasn't sure if I kept it for a future segment in a future episode, but I will talk about it uh, later. And it was, I think, right around 6%. But what you're seeing with big Canadian banks and larger institutions in the US is they didn't feel compelled to increase their interest rates because their depositor base was was not moving. But now you might start seeing some pressure on those earnings, whether it's the big Canadian banks or in the U.S., the JP Morgans and so on, because now people are actually demanding to get more interest on the money they're leaving at the bank. And if they're not, then they're going to go and look for short-term treasuries, which don't have those interest rate risk of the longer duration de- treasuries and are actually yielding more right now. So I think it's, it just makes a whole lot of sense to people have their money you know moving to something that's yielding four four and a half five percent um so it's going to be interesting what kind of pressure it puts on bank uh until the rest of this year or at least until you know rates start easing up with uh the central banks i just got my
0: eq bank card have yeah. you ordered the card
1: yet Oh, i've had it for months yeah
0: oh have oh wow i'm a yeah, laggard yeah. here i'm <laughs> reading the, those beautiful ad reads and uh well, you know what? I was waiting to, to get it because I wasn't in the country. So I finally, I finally ordered it now that I'm back in the country and had somewhere to send it to, like an actual address. To s- oh, yeah. <laughs> send it to this homeless guy that uh, is now back in Canada. Uh, I swear I run a Canadian investor podcast. Um, no, I got the card. It's, it's nice. I like it. It's, uh, it's a good concept. So shout out to EQ Bank, one of our main sponsors. All right, let's – we get to move on? That was really good, by the way. Yeah. You just
1: crushed that. And I'll kind of touch a little bit more on it on the next segment, but it'll be more focused on TFSA. But uh, I'll let you do your segment first. (laughs) Okay.
0: (laughs) Sounds good. Let's do a segment on talking to investor relations. On my camera roll on my phone, I have random photos of books – like random, like I'll just like I'll be reading a book and be like this is really good and I I have like a habit of just kind of taking a a picture of it because you know I, yeah I could put a sticky note on it but I'm never gonna look at it again so I'll just take a picture of it and, and the iPhone will actually like make an album of all the photos that look like that so I just have a bunch <laughs> of like you know what I mean like it automatically does it for me so it's pretty cool that that AI tech. Um And I found this one on my camera roll from about six years ago, like it was dated literally six years ago, and it 's from one up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch and I thought it was awesome it 's around communicating with the company 's investor relations when you have a question as an investor or as a prospective investor, no matter how big, how small you could own ten million shares or one share or not and if you you have they're there. To field questions from investors, and they don't know if you own one share or ten million shares, and so that's that's kind of the beauty of it. So, in Peter Lynch's you know kind of cheeky way of writing, he has some he has a good passage here. So it's called calling the company. This is a section from the book. Professionals call companies all the time, yet amateurs never think of it. If you have specific questions, the investor relations office. So keep in mind. This is pre-internet days. This is in the 80s, I think you wrote this. The Investor Relations Office is a good place to get answers. That's one more thing the broker can do, get you their phone number. <laughs> also, pretty sure you can get their phone number and their email pretty quick now. But uh, let's, let's go back to the 80s here. Many companies would welcome a chance to exchange view with the owner of 100 shares. And if it's a small outfit, you may find yourself talking to the president. In the unlikely event that the investor relations gives you the cold shoulder, you can tell them that you own 20,000 shares and you're deciding whether to double your position. Then casually mention that your shares are held in quote street name. (laughs) This is also brilliant because you're like, make up some street name is like, there's bound to be some cat, like, you know, uh, Bredo capital, uh, street. Like there's, there's no, there's, it's completely made up, but you sound legit. So this ought to th- warm things up, he says. Actually, I'm not recommending this, but fibbing is something that people might think of and increase the odds of getting caught, Or and the odds of getting caught here are nil. So again, you don't need to do what he's saying about fibbing, about being a large shareholder. They won't ask that. And now in 2023, or for a long time in the internet era, go on the Investor Relations site and you send them an email. Their email will be there. It'll usually be investors at acmecorp.com. And it's super easy. They'll send you a response, usually in a business day or two. In all my experiences, it's been in the same week. And they usually come back with a wonderfully comprehensive answer. And very often, very often, It is the actual C-suite that answers if it's a good question. A lot of times it'll just be someone in the investor relations department, but a lot of times, especially if it's founder run and it's not a huge company, they'll be the ones that respond. I have had large billion dollar company CEOs and CFOs respond to my questions. Now, don't go on wasting their time. Like, you know, is this a good stock to buy? You know, don't be asking them about like short-term performance or anything like that. Uh, but if you have questions like one that I did recently, I asked about the Brookfield spinoff. This is before it was publicly traded. Uh, this is before anything, really. It was basically just Bruce, Bruce Flatt saying that they were going to spin it off. And I asked them, what would the structure look like if you did this 25% ownership uh spin out or sorry spinning out twenty five percent of the business, like Bruce Flat has said on the conference calls, would that be you know then the mothership owned seventy five percent What would be the final ownership of all the subsidiaries for Brookfield after that and and then I sent them a screenshot of the the one that I keep up to date, and I said, What would this look like after and they responded with literally like a three page response outlining everything that I asked. They filled out my little spreadsheet and they uh, linked to a bunch of diagrams that I hadn't seen on, you know, some filing with the government that was like, you know, hundreds of pages long or whatever it was. And I was like, that was so easy. Uh, They didn't ask me, uh, you know, (laughs) how many billions of Brookfield shares do you own? Like that's not their agenda any shareholder can, can ask these types of questions the same way, you know, one share of Berkshire Hathaway B-class shares can get you into the annual shareholder meeting. It's okay to ask questions and you'll be surprised at who answers.
1: Yeah. And I mean, especially nowadays with social media, I would say it's not to the advantage of a company to you know not answering you or giving you uh you know an answer where you're you know they clearly think you're not important or anything like that you never know who you're dealing with so if they start getting bad press i mean that's not good for them either so i think they're probably cognizant of that as well so I, i wouldn't you know, I'm with you on here. I I don't see why they would, you know, question that. Like, who knows, right? They don't know who you are. And maybe you have a lot of pull. Maybe, you know, you have half a million followers on Twitter. And if they, you know, they give you the cold shoulder or whatever it is, I mean, they could really pay the price down the line. So, I think that's something that they're probably very cognizant about.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I'm a big believer in you attract the shareholders you deserve as a company and great companies will will take this very seriously, and they'll give you a good answer, and they'll take the time. Not to mention, all of these billion-dollar public companies, they have an entire investor relations department. Uh, whether it's one person or 50 people, there is a department dedicated to fielding these kinds of questions and press related to their shareholder base. So I just wanted to bring that up because I, I have used it and every time I email a company about this to their investor relations, I'm always surprised and I always ask myself, why don't I do this more often? Because I have questions all the time that I might just like pose to the Twitterverse when I could literally just ask the exact question to the, a, the from actual the company. Yeah. yeah, and they'll give me the actual answer. Uh, so yeah, it's a, it's a good little, little tip that I wanted to remind everyone of.
1: Oh, definitely. Um, now I guess last segment here, like I alluded. So TFSA and cash and holding at cash in your TFSA. And I think holding cash in general. I mean, I did tweet something uh you, that got definitely quite a bit of comments so if you have cash in your tfsc and you're not getting at least four percent on it you're leaving money on the table and i actually believe that um right now if you're not getting four percent there's definitely ways to be getting at least four percent and as high i would say as five percent even even a bit higher than that if you're going beyond that then you know it may not be you know the safest investment there might be additional risks, but, um I know it's a topic that people are passionate about, and especially the TFSA part where, you know, we hammer in, you and I, were people still old a lot of cash in their TFSA. And I know we had someone comment, we had someone reach out, say, oh, well, you know, it's not... Uh, you know for a lot of people they don't have a lot of money to invest in a TFSA and they're also using the the TFSA to meet certain you know medium to short term goals so it would not make sense to put it in anything other than a GIC or high interest savings ETF, uh, like CSAV or PSU, PSA. I've talked about them before. There's a bunch of them. There's also money markets ETF. But what we talk about in the surveys we, we quote and the one I pulled is one we talked about before from January 2022 from BMO. But all these surveys kind of have similar finding is that cash And we're just talking about cash here, not ETFs that may be cash equivalents, but they're still not cash. Cash is the most popular asset. So the majority of Canadians, 56%, have cash in their TFSA and 29% say cash makes up at least three quarters of their holdings. And in that same survey, while 73% of Canadians considered themselves knowledgeable about TFSAs, only half of Canadians were aware that a TFSA account can hold both cash and at least one other type of investment. We're not saying wow. to name all the other types of investment, just one, just and one. the ETFs I just referenced, they are other types of investment. I will agree, though, they are very liquid, but the purpose of this survey was actually cash by itself, because an ETF can hold all different kind of assets, right? It can hold bonds, equity, uh, you know, kind of be a cash savings account like this. It can all different types of even, you know, covered call ETFs, things like that. So there's all different kinds of ETFs that you can get. You can get a Bitcoin ETF, right? So it's just a type of vehicle. And within that vehicle, there's different kind of investing instruments.
0: We love all the questions we get uh, to our email from the website. And... uh, someone wrote me, me a letter or an email and they're very respectful. So this, per, yeah. this person is we love constructive yes, feedback. Yes, yeah. you're you're amazing. But I had to push back on on what they were saying. They're basically saying, Braden, you know, you're so harsh on people holding cash in their TFSA, like uh I have two reasons why I think it makes sense. And like the first one is the first one is uh well I can use a you know a cash ETF and go to get a good return. My response to that is, that's not cash. (laughs) If I hold a cash ETF in my brokerage, I might be considering it cash. My broker is not considering it cash. That is not adding to the cash statistic. It is not cash. It's a security. You own it in an ETF. So I I respect what you're saying, but that is not... The data, the data is that that would be considered a stock because an exchange traded fund would be classified as so. Uh, so that's, that's one. And number two is that, you know, people want to be holding cash for saving for a house or saving for this, saving for that. And I said, sure, but I don't agree that using TFSA contribution room to hold cash is a wise play. I this is not investment advice but I firmly stand on my position that using contribution room in your TFSA for cash makes no sense.
1: I mean when it depends, you, right? I think it depends how much room you have. I think that's depends the Depends how fact. much yeah, room exactly. you have, but I have to have some sort of
0: general opinion on this and that is my opinion that contribution room in your TFSA is so sacred. It is like, you know, like it's so valuable. Your contribution limit is so valuable and sure. Of course there's nuance to this. Maybe you have tons of room that you're not going to utilize what you're hinting at, but generally speaking, I don't want to hold, I don't want to use any of that sacred contribution limit to hold Cash for saving for, for something. I want to use that tax free contribution limit to own high expected returns like a broad basket of equities or, you know, something I can expect a return on higher than inflation and especially higher than cash that's yeah. that's end end, end of rent
1: <laughs> yeah and I mean I have a more nuanced approach I would say just because right now especially right now um, the real return on cash if you use an ETF uh, whether it's a money market ETF or a high interest savings ETF I mean that gap between the interest you're getting and the inflation rate is narrowing and it's getting to an, a point in my opinion where it starts being very attractive to hold some cash whether you you want to use it for you know dry powder for example just because there's that you know that volatility that's not as present with cash. So there is definitely some attractiveness there. I mean, I would not use the majority of my TFSA to hold, you know, cash right. or cash equivalents. Uh, but I mean, which I, is what this study is suggesting it's being
0: used for. I, that's where my like confusion stems from. I'm not saying yeah. don't hold cash. you know like, don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. And I know you understand that, but
1: yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the way I see it, because I have, you know, a decent amount of room I've used uh, most of it, but I would say I still have about like a quarter of my room left. That's just my personal situation. And because I have so much room is I've actually been using for parking cash for uh, paying my taxes. So i put money aside uh, because you know we have a dividend we have to pay taxes on that so i put money regularly and i put in these instruments that are yielding money because i want that money to be there you know i don't want the stock market to be down 20 percent when i need to (laughs) take that money out to pay the cra so it actually gives me decent returns but again if i was closer to my limit I would probably, you know, use uh, look at, you know, high interest savings accounts or even uh, just use it in a taxable account Um, and just do use those same instruments. I mean, it'll be taxed at my regular income, but uh, that's kind of the way I would approach things. But yeah, that's this is
0: this is why everyone's situations, you know, different and, and nuanced. And that's why none of this, of course, is financial advice in your situation. That makes sense. If you're up against the ceiling, I, I firmly believe it should be not used for that, but, if it, but you have the room, so you're using it for that. The stat that I'd be interesting uh, hearing about in this, in this study, because this frames the con- conversation for me personally, mm-hmm. is which pers- like you know, of these participants that answered, how much contribution limit, how much room have they used of their ceiling?
1: I think most people are not even close. I think that same survey, I mean, I'll I'll pull it up. But I think at the time, the average balance was like in the mid 30,000s. Okay. So that does imply, I mean, obviously it will be skewed with those who have large balances and those who are not, but let's just say that implies that most people That's are probably using just, you know, a portion of it. But again, I have more room than you for the main reason that I was 18 when the TFSA started and you weren't. So, yeah. I'll have accumulated more room and I've made some, uh, you know, some good profits on money that I had to withdraw when I bought a house and things like that. So, uh, you know, I I have a very, <laughs> I ended up having a pretty decent chunk of room in my TFSA. But all that to and say- And those years that it was 10
0: grand, like I think I had two or three of those before yeah. I switched.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think my main point here is that, you know, whether- You know, let's forget about TFSA for a second, but whether you're looking at TFSA or not, I mean, right now, there are just some really good opportunities at, you know, getting four and a half plus percent on your cash whether you look at a gic and you want to lock in those rates because uh, you might think that interest rates are going down in the next year or so which could happen i really don't know where rates are going that's an option you have these uh, high interest savings etfs that are other options you have money market funds that look at the u.s treasury bills for example short term so those pay <clears throat> A very high yield as well there's just a lot of of option there's even high interest savings account now that are doing a decent uh, kind of return on money so you know if you have a bank and they're giving you like less than one percent which i know is still the case for a lot of banks uh, you know if you have a decent amount of money it's definitely worthwhile exploring your options clearly some of the options i talked about don't have uh, cdic insurance And if that's really important to you, then make sure you look at options that do have that type of insurance, um, you know, uh, with them, with the Canadian Deposit Insurance Corporation. So, you know, there's different options there, but if you don't mind not having that insurance or, you know, there's other options that that are available that can give you a, a bit higher yield, but... Four to five percent is definitely obtainable right now. And uh, you know, personally I think you're leaving money on the table if you're not getting at least, I would say, four percent.
0: No, I think that it's it's a it's a good take. I actually I I agree with this because look, it's it's out there and it's not easy it's not hard to achieve that rate on on cash right now. So like kind of back to if you are in a situation where you you do want to get some yield on this, I'm in that situation since I have to pay taxes now from this business. Like you know, I've only I've been a T four guy forever. I, you know, investing in my RSP. I'm used to getting money back at the end of the year. This year you and I got the fat tax bill. And so I've been using EQ Bank um and before they were a sponsor too, by the way. Like I I like prefacing that because, you know, I don't like chilling out just things that we talk about as sponsors Mm -hmm. um and because you know they're given those pretty solid rates like i don't want to throw out a number and to be wrong but it's it's high uh, a lot higher than what i'm getting at another bank and uh those options are available now and i think this goes back to uh the banks have a bit of a challenge like there's like a bit of a customer churn issue and uh you know when i can get this on a e t f from horizons or whatever it is per, all purpose e t f four percent that's there's competition for my cash,
1: yeah no exactly, and i mean i like you know we use e q banks as sponsor, but uh you know i use them due and i use them too, and for you know the first four months of the year i was uh you know every time we paid a dividend, i put a portion of that dividend in a one year g i c because I do like the fact that it's locked in, so I don't touch it. It's all good. It's locked in for a year. It'll come to maturity before we have to pay taxes next year. And then, you know, as I get closer, I'm still putting money aside. Then I'll look at the other options that are more liquid because then I don't have that one-year term in front of me anymore. But, you know, it it's the first time I remember investing that there have been really attractive options for parking cash. And I think I think it's important for people to remember that because, you know, for the whole decade essentially since the, the great financial crisis, it was simply not an option. I mean, you were getting, even in real rates, you weren't getting really much on your money and now it just – gives people that option especially you know if you're saving for you know a down payment on a home and you want to potentially buy in the next year or two you know it could be risky to put money into equities because you don't know what will happen but having you know four and a half five percent on your cash while you're waiting i mean it's 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 not a bad thing if you ask me especially if you know home prices kind of stabilize while your down payment still growing without much risk and then you know you can start and uh, pull the trigger when you're ready. Sure beats the
0: uh, you know, traditional checking account few basis points they give oh, you man. that you don't even notice. Yeah. <laughs> you could be a trillionaire and still not even notice the difference. Uh, no, you're right. There's, 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 uh, there's a new competition for cash. And if you're uh, one of these cash, these HISA cash ETFs you know, the horizons the uh, – uh, CSAV or uh the purpose one
1: I've yeah psa is the ca- canadian yeah psa, PSA and psu it's for usd from horizon it's literally ticker cash yeah there's PO. bill if you want to own treasury short-term treasury bill bil listed in the u.s um so these are one to three month treasury bills the so inflows
0: on these things must be
1: oh yeah well there's lately the data I had was that it increased six percent to hit a record 5.2 trillion in the U.S. in March. Since that, yeah, because people, and that's I think, keep going. yeah, and I think a lot of it is short-term uh, money market funds because people are like, you know what, that bill I just mentioned, these are treasuries backed by the U.S. government, right? And they're short-term, so yeah. there's not those um, interest rate. You know, risk associated with it. Obviously, you're lock- locking in. You know, higher rates for longer term, but you get kind of that safety. So they've really seen and moved to, <laughs> to those money market funds in the U.S. What can happen with the
0: value of the uh, of the actual equity, though? What do you mean? It's, tra- it's traded as an ETF.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, it shouldn't matter because the shares can either be created or redeemed, right, as necessary to keep the price in line with the the price of the the so they underlying just keep it asset, at like fifty bucks or whatever. Yeah, exactly. I think it okay. it'll vary like a few cents when the distribution happens. Yeah, and then it kind of like those ETFs are kind of funny because it's like it yeah, goes. The chart looks insane. Yeah it, the the value of the Um, it's hard to explain, but it kind of goes up very, very slowly for the month. And then when you hit the cutoff date for the distribution, it'll look like it goes down sharply. And then the next month it goes up and then hits the same value it did the previous month and then goes down. So, just adjust a few cents based on where you're at in the month, basically. I know that it does that for the the Heisa ones, but does yeah. that is that is it the, the same exact? One. Yeah, I for, think I uh, checked the the T bill one too. Yeah, I'm pretty. I checked last weekend because I was just curious. Uh, I think it does the exact same it's, thing. because it's it's holding bonds. Yeah. that's why I'm. Yeah, it does. That's the why same I have thing. the question. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's just like. <laughs> It just go up, down, up, down. But never – they're not big fluctuations. Like people may think it's a big fluctuation. But if you look at Bill, um, you know, at the end of February, it dropped from – it went up at a peak of 91.71 and dropped to a whopping 91.46. So it's just that small drop and then it goes up and then the distribution date happens and it kind of goes back down. But these are like super small, you know, they're what, 0.5% or whatever it is. Yeah.
0: I don't know if you know the answer to this. Operationally,
1: how do they do that? Because they're holding bonds. Yeah, but they're short term. So, they constantly come to maturity. That's what I I would think. So, they're just one to three month bill, um, treasury Mm -hmm. bills. I think it it looks different when you're holding longer term duration because then they get influenced by the uh, interest rate variation. Yeah. I don't know at what length this starts acting differently, but the one to three month I think is just so short term that it does not really get impacted by interest rates. And the Um, maturities are all staggered too. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you look at the fun fact they give you the the maturity date, which are all you know, there's probably daily maturities. Yeah,
0: those instruments are pretty intense to operate.
1: I oh, like. I mean, I would not want to operate it, but as a, <laughs> as an investor, it's a really great tool. The only thing with Bill is if you own it in a the TFSA, there's going to be uh, withholding taxes. But mm. um, yeah. it's an interesting one, especially if you're looking to um, to own it in a taxable account, for example.
0: Very cool. Uh, back to here on the the TFSA in cash. Was that all of your notes, or is there more more here? No,
1: that's it. Yeah, that's, that's it. it. Okay, yeah. cool.
0: Dude, it's um it's good it's good to have options, right? Like Exactly. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, with, with change of rates, like dude, my, my buddy's dad, he's he's telling me he's he's talking about when he was uh he was a big shot in Toronto, uh, for for a fixed income market and he was locking in some ridiculous would that would that have been the eighties? When 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 did, uh, you know, a short-term bond yield like, you know, 18%-ish? I yeah, that would have been this?
1: like late 80s, I think. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I was just like, wow. You
1: know, things... When it makes no change. sense to hold equities, things. yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, at that point, it's like... Almost, yeah, yeah. Unless you're Buffett getting 24% return to compound annually over 100 years, like, jeez. Like, I mean... You got to be crazy to think that you can see, get a better return than that.
1: No, exactly. No, it's it's still a different environment than right now for sure. But uh, one thing that I'll talk about in a future episode, I'm sure people will want to hear, is I'm I've made some high level changes to my overall portfolio. How I see things, not it's not going to lead to that much changes in the short term in the names I hold, but in terms of how I want to allocate money. So stay tuned huh. for. Yeah. I mean it's not it's kinda in line with what I've talked in the past year or year and a half. So you'll oh, see it and you won't I'm interested be to hear. Yeah, you I'm won't be, be overly surprised. <laughs> but they're just kind of just tweaks, I would say, in bigger buckets. So uh Is oh, this was this
0: inspired by the like on the joint tci.com I was like how I view my portfolio.
1: Uh in part. Yeah, I mean, it's a bigger kind of high level uh, of mindset, I would say, uh, but just okay. something I was slowly tweaking over the past year and a half. So people who have been listening. They probably won't be overly surprised, but uh, I'll talk about that. It's changed a little bit, uh, but not to worry. I mean, the vast majority is still in equities, so that's not going to change. Right, right. Uh, that's a good handoff to, uh, to to wrap up today's show and give
0: a handoff to com. That is the Patreon where we have 178 patrons. It's $9 Canadian a month. 178 patrons are supporting the show and they see our portfolio tracking performance spreadsheet, our holdings, and our thoughts kind of every month. And my, my write-up this month was, I don't have anything interesting to report that's more interesting than Simone's like huge updates here. So I'm just going <laughs> to, I'm just going to leave it at that. Here's a, here's a, here's a spread, Here's a copy of my spreadsheet. Uh, go nuts. But one thing that you, I did, I think three months ago or two months ago, I wrote in there, this is my portfolio by position and equity, you know, holding allocation. And this is how I think about my portfolio and have I mean, it. There's a separate. Uh, a separate table. And they're virtually identical other than the fact that I was getting so many names because, you know, the spinoffs from Constellation, the spinoffs from Brookfield, I'm not going to sell those shares. And they're just part of the position that I already owned before. And I'm not, I have no plans on making portfolio changes. So it's just like, you know, the OCD in me is like, I don't want 26 positions. And then I, I scale it back and I'm like, there's actually only like 15 to 17 when you think about this logically. Yeah, Like I hold MasterCard and Visa in a 10% position, equal weighted. That's one investment thesis to me in the way I view those companies. Or, you know, the Moody's and S&P global pair trade, you know, like that's one. The Constellation, Lumine Group, Topicus, those are not three individual positions to me. They're all under the operating, they're operating groups underneath Constellation. And I thought that was a very instructive exercise for me.
1: Yeah. No, I think I, I did the same too, uh, just to help people visualize a little bit, but uh, same kind of thing for me. I think one that really comes, like there's a Brookfields, but also, um, you know, I have Bitcoin, but also I have Bitcoin ETF. So that's kind of one position, right? I, I used right. to have it in two separate things, and and then I also had some cash, not a lot, not in ETFs, and also a decent chunk in those, uh, you know, high interest savings ETFs. So it just made sense to combine those so there's just things that yes they added a bunch of rows but when you kind of you know pull back a little bit you're like okay these three rows actually they're the same thing and then these two are the same thing so I think it it helps people visualize and also think you know we don't have as many positions as it may look at first glance right
0: yeah it kind of cuts through the noise uh, as a viewer of joinTCI.com but honestly for me it was really helpful for me to do. It was kind of like long overdue.
1: Yeah. We'll try to keep that updated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the spreadsheet. Like, I had a little trouble with the formatting. The manually, yeah, exactly. Like, uh... I had to do it manually because every time I sorted, it messed up all the the things it picked up. So I'm like, okay, sorry, it's not in the, the right order because when I try to do it, it just messes up everything. But uh, there's, yeah.
0: a, there's a function or like I know a lookup yeah. that I know how to do in Excel that doesn't exist in Sheets. Uh, okay, that's why. In the go- So, I, I was trying to do it that way and I was like, you and I are both in the situation where I'm like, oh man, this is going to be a manual thing every month.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I try so, to sort and then I'm like, okay, this doesn't make sense. This is not no, these doesn't. two positions together. And then yeah. I look, obviously, it's picking up a different cell and yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's like double counting stuff. Um, And for that manual work, you know, us doing the stuff over there to make it better for you at jointtci.com, go ahead. If you're not already a patron, go to jointtci.com. We answer the questions there faster too, just because, well, you know, $9, <laughs> you're spending the, the big bucks of $9 Canadian to support the show. We appreciate you very much. That is at jointtci.com. We will see you in a few days. Take care. Bye-bye.
1: The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.